Hey guys, what if I told you that the bad habit you are stuck in or the wall that keeps you between where you are and where you want to go? What if I told you that a psychologist and neuroscientist have found an easy solution for you? Well, neuroscientist Norman Farb and psychologist Zendel Siegel have written a book called Better in Every Sense. And you're about to hear a powerful conversation between us where they unpack their research about how to use your senses to achieve your breakthrough. You're about to learn how to use nature and simple things around you, the beautiful stimuli around you, to activate problem solving and innovative thinking to help you get to the next level. This is a dimension beyond mindfulness, by the way. Thanks so much for choosing this episode. And now I'm going to take you into the most relevant part of our conversation to help you achieve your goals. Enjoy. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, really well. Pleasure to be with you. Yeah, it's, it's great to meet you and uh, really looking forward to our conversation. Two, two people from your backgrounds are able to have a conversation and get something like this done. Did you guys debate a lot? Did you go back and forth? Did you wrestle with ideas? Because a neuroscientist and psychologist, when you get together, uh, how was the process of working on this work together? Um, you know, it's interesting, the whole thing about coalitions. I, I feel like Norm and I, um, we're a coalition of two against a world that sometimes had set ideas that we were trying to explore and possibly upend. So I don't remember a lot of uh, debates between us, but I do remember a lot of us joining together to say that certain views that have become entrenched, uh, which actually leave sensation out of the narrative, uh, needed to potentially be opened up to consider what some of our data was suggesting. Take us a little bit back further. How did you guys meet? Yeah, um, we've known each other for quite a long time, I think going on 15 years or so uh, from the time I was just starting my PhD at the University of Toronto. Uh, Zindel is a distinguished uh, research professor already um, at the Centre uh, for Addiction and Mental Health. Um, and he had uh, met my uh, supervisor at the time, uh, Dr. Adam Anderson, to talk about doing some of the first neuroimaging studies of mindfulness meditation, because uh, Zindel had already found, yeah, he'd found really incredible results around mindfulness as being one of the only proven ways that you could get someone off of antidepressants safely. It's really easy to get onto antidepressants yeah. these days, hard to get off, because um, they actually do something to help help with mood. And, and the question was, well, what's going on in the brain? Obviously, the drugs are affecting the brain in, in some way. And if the, if the training is having some kind of effect, um, you know, it must be doing something to the brain too. And I was the guy in the lab who did yoga on the side. I wanted to learn more about, you know, emotions <laughs> and, and awareness. And they're like, well, there's this, this thing called mindfulness. You could, you could learn to do neuroimaging. We have funding for it. Uh, let's go. And so um, that was really the start of our journey though. There was quite a bit of a, I wouldn't say we were colleagues at that time. I think I was like sh shrinking into your office <laughs> to sort of find out more about the study uh, in, in the early days. Um, so, you know, I think we've grown to know each other a lot better over the, over the past 15 years since then. Well, I'm, I'm completely fascinated by some of the great minds coming out of Canada. Are you guys from Canada? Yep. Yeah, I'm, I'm you a Toronto really? kid. Yeah. And Are you you're really? from Montreal. Yeah, I was raised in uh, Montreal. So uh, do you guys spend much time on social media yourselves? Do you have a social media uh, brand? Where can we find you? 
Yeah, we're we're trying to develop ones. I don't think we're uh, native uh, influencers, um, but we're trying to develop <laughs> those skills. You know, as as we try to promote our research and get, and get the ideas out and get into conversations with people. So we both have, you know, uh, Twitter X handles with our our names like Norman Favre and, and Zindel Siegel. Um, yeah, we have a TikTok uh, fledgling account uh, for the book, Better in Every Sense, where we're trying to uh, learn the 15 to 30 second format and make it fun. Uh, and I think that's actually been really good for us, like to explore and play a little bit, right? Because it's a very different format than you're going to lecture at someone for 45 minutes sure, plus, sure. right? Like, what do you yeah, really yeah. need? And how do you hook, the, hook your audience? So um, I felt like we've grown and actually uh, learned some cin- cinematic skills and filming skills, but also learned to like play and be a bit more concise. Um, so yeah, we're, we're getting in there, but I, uh, I think we're still kind of building that identity. Um, and it's, it's been really yeah, interesting yeah. At, uh, to read your work and um, think a little bit more about like a, an authentic brand. Like what would our authentic brand look like? It's not just something sure, we're sure. using because the, you know, a publisher wants us to, but what are some of your findings that help us rethink how we approach success. There may be a need to turn orthogonally to a whole different domain, one that doesn't use thought, that doesn't use thinking, but allows us to step into and leverage uh, sensory input to allow us to uh, look at situations from an entirely different frame. And I think that that's just starting to get a little bit of traction in the clinical world. Yeah. You guys call this... um sense foraging right uh i think you want to expand would you like to unpack this a little bit and add to yeah um i'd love to i mean i think a lot of uh this even sense foraging we're trying to create this kind of um brand word in a way um to make it intelligible uh, to the average person uh and it really reflects a lot of what was unintelligible to us about our, our brain data when we were look, doing neuroimaging of people who have depression, uh, who are vulnerable to relapse, we kept thinking that we would see patterns of overexcited storytelling, narration, self-identity activating in the brain. But what kept coming up for us actually was this pattern where, yes, that was happening, but, but what was predicting depression uh, vulnerability, whether someone would relapse or not, whether they were really suffering in life, was the absence of sensory processing. So in response to some kind of stressor, um, people were thinking a lot about the event, but they were also shutting down the sensory pathways in the brain. And it was the sensory shutdown that was actually most correlated with their vulnerability, with whether they would relapse in the future or uh, actively depressed right now. And so we actually just got to know the problem first in a way, that there's that this hollowness that people are feeling is really because they're learning to protect themselves from, from the sensory feeling states. And that actually leaves them numb or closed off to new experiences that aren't just, you know, thinking about the upsetting event or the stress in their lives. And so the term sense foraging is trying to marry what we already know is becoming more popular in, in the clinical world in, in, with terms like behavioral activation or savoring therapies, where we actually try to create safe structures where people can rebuild that machinery to explore and notice that there are neutral and, and dare I say even positive aspects of life that have just been completely closed off. And the term foraging um, is, a, is a, you know, we played with different verbs, but I think it's, it's a really apt one because it's like you're going out intentionally to find something new, something valuable, but you don't know exactly what it is, right? So this idea of yeah. like, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't know exactly what it is, but I know that there's probably something good out there. There's a kind of a hopefulness and intentionality around that. 
But if you already knew exactly what it was and you had it, you wouldn't need to, to go out. So it really is this kind of exploratory mindset. Uh, and the place you're going to explore is in sensation. Don't believe that the, the new insight very often or, or perhaps never really comes just from thinking your way into a new place. You have this experience and then the thinking comes afterwards and people are trying to skip that step, which sort of locks them into the way they're already thinking. So I have one foot in the developing world and another in kind of the Western block. And one, one of the challenges that when I first saw this work before I dug in quite a bit was how much of this foraging is a luxury? Hmm. You know, when you have the extraordinary pressures of survival, and, and I don't for once think that survival is about resources and so forth. Sometimes it can be about, you could be experiencing a divorce and really struggle to access the resources to start foraging, etc. So it's not about poor or wealthy, any of that stuff. But I'm really interested to know what sort of default basis, default positioning do you need in place before you can begin foraging? Or am I just off base entirely? No, I think that's like a very, very good question. Um, how can this be accessible to the greatest number of people? And I think one of the simple uh, virtues of sense foraging is that it's really shifting a um, mode that we have from thinking about uh, analyzing problem solving to one that is receptive. And that's a switch that can be made in a microsecond. To be receptive involves trying to connect with sensory uh, moments and resources that are always all around you, that are ever present, and that uh, we can connect with very easily. So it doesn't require any machinery, anything more. Um, listening to a bird sing, listening to sounds that are in the room, looking at things that attract our visual attention, they're there for us to see, but often we're preoccupied moving down different tracks that our minds are telling us. That's why I think it can potentially cut through people's circumstances because of the immersion potential and the pervasive potential of turning on a receptive mode to sensation. Yeah, I, I mean, I, go yeah, ahead, Norm. Like, I think in some ways, maybe you're asking, is this just like a, a first world problem, right? Like, oh, we have all this this stuff to, you know, we have all these issues, but they're not real issues. And what happens when it's really like the threat of, of violence or, or um, you know, a really severe economic disparity? And it's not like going into your senses is going to feed your belly or protect you from from physical aggression. Um, but one thing that we've noticed that I think Sindel's totally correct, that it's kind of universal is as we get more stressed, um, we actually cut off a lot of our alternatives because to protect ourselves from that feeling of stress, we're, we, it seems to be as universal, though admittedly we haven't done a ton of cross-cultural research at this point, but this human tendency to want to protect oneself from feeling something threatening or or negative is definitely leveraged by social media, but occurs in in many parts of the world where it's not just a symbol. It, it, there really is this threat. Um, and what people don't realize is this attempt to protect yourself from feeling threatened actually puts on kind of blinders. And so the, the solutions to like, you know, 
why isn't my blog post getting enough hits is, is not the same solution as like, how am I going to put food on the table? Right. Like, and I don't want to say, Oh, it's the same level of, of actual like real, real danger, but the, the tendency still to just think, okay, I have to double down on what I already know and just do more of it because, you know, feeling things is just going to make me more upset and make me more dysfunctional is true in the heat of the moment. Um, but is probably not true half an hour after the moment, an hour after the moment. And at that point, it's no longer adaptive to try to have your, your guard up. You can just start thinking laterally in a way, right? Like taking in new information, letting yourself be surprised or have um, ideas you haven't had before if you really want to be able to change the situation. So we believe that that, that principle is fairly universal, um, even though the, the specific instances of the problems are different. Humans just adapt they'll find something to suffer about. <laughs> and as we've seen in the developed Western world, probably using the sure. same machine, but we think it can work at, at all at all levels, even though it's not going to replace, you know, um, uh, a need for basic physical sustenance, safety, security, connection. Let's look at an archetype. Let's say you are a high-performing entrepreneur or some sort of managing director or CEO. We have a lot of senior professionals who listen to this show. They are, they've just received investment to expand, um, you know, their, their offering or they're looking to, to, you know, export their business, you know, across to another country, et cetera. And they're doing really, really well. Let's talk to that person. Um, how does Sense Forging support their efforts to accelerate? to 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 grow to expand themselves let's talk directly to the soul the mind the heart of that person listen um okay uh it's interesting um i think i think we should also be aware that um sense foraging is the term and maybe the brand for the book but if you read a little bit further on into the book there's another part of the sense foraging pathway, which involves toggling. And toggling involves moving between these two different modes, these two different brain networks, one of which is specialized for problem solving and for doing the kinds of things that have led this person to be successful commercially and to be successful as a leader. What we're also trying to show people is that there is an additional mode where people can uh, very easily step into it, one of receptivity to sensation, one that involves, as Norm said, foraging and exploration. So we're giving people a reminder that they have these two gears that they can shift between. And so their ability to self-regulate is going to be enhanced. Very often people continue to ride on the same gear that got them to where they were, but the possibility in terms of resilience, in terms of personal growth and integrity, we believe can be enhanced by having access to both of these gears and then making decisions about which of these gears they want to ride through, you know, burnout, um, all kinds of cardiac and other physical health um, events are associated with very successful people pushing themselves to the limit. And sometimes this can be a way of providing them with an alternative method of dialing it back into a realm in which the same strategies and attitudes aren't as dominant in which they're more about receiving and exploring. And we believe that that can contribute to resilience. Let's get a little nerdy for a moment. Chemically, 
from a neural pathway perspective, when you're in this sense foraging space, what's happening inside of the brain? Yeah, without without going into an extended nerdy lecture, I think <laughs> it's really useful to cartoon the brain up as a couple of different networks that are sort of competing uh, for metabolism, right? O- using oxygen to burn sugar, essentially. Okay. Um, and so on one side, we have this network that shows up whenever people are just left to their own devices, like in a brain scanner, uh, which is known as the default mode network. Right? And this network okay. is all the things we know best, right? Including thoughts about the self. Uh, whenever you shift into habit, you start doing a task and it becomes routine. This network takes over. It's what lets you kind of go on autopilot all the way from how fast your heart should beat to, you know, um, st- snacking in the evening, right? It's, it's, uh, it's <laughs> plant stuff. So this network you want on all the time that nothing new is, is happening and nothing really needs to change because it's very efficient. It frees up your mind to think about other things. On the other side uh, is this network known as the salience network. Um, which activates more in in the front of the brain to kind of shake things up and and knock off the default network for a moment or change its connections that it starts taking in new information, which is really expensive and tiring, expensive in a metabolic sense, use a lot of calories and oxygen and and so forth. And so um, what happens to someone, especially when they're, um, when they're stressed is the default network seems like it goes into overdrive. And if you look at brain scans of someone who's actively depressed, their, their default network has actually kind of colonized other parts of the brain that are used for problem solving. And so that problem solving machinery is being used in a habitual way to reflect back or ruminate back on the exact same problems. And so you end up getting into these, it feels like you're putting in a lot of effort, but you're just sort of rehearsing the same script. Like, why didn't this person, you know, love me? Why didn't this thing work out? Why am I, you know, this hopeless or, or uh, you know, otherwise un- not valuable individual? And none of these problems really have solutions where you're going to turn around and be like, actually, I'm great, or here's here's something new. Um, and so what we're trying to do is actually just restore balance. That's this, this idea of toggling where, where you have these really quiet sensory parts of the brain, and they're quiet because they're not being empowered to communicate into the places where you have awareness and into the front of the brain, into to have new thoughts and, and patterns integrated into the default network. So um, someone who's quite stressed or locked in or languishing or or sort of stuck in a rut is probably going to show a lot of default mode network activity. They'll occasionally show a lot of uh, a third network, an executive network, which is trying to do planning and problem solving, but falling back into these default states. And the sensory cortices themselves are probably going to be very quiet. We know really clearly where they are because it's sort of where the wires end (laughs) when they hit hit the brain, like eyes, ears, nose, uh, mouth, and and, and so forth. Um, And so by making it really important to have sensory experience to treating that as like the actual object. Like that's what I'm doing right now is trying to have sensory experience. Our attention is sufficient to start bringing activation back into these networks. And in doing so it's pulling resources away from the default mode network. We're still going to have habits in the sense of identity. That's not going to break. It's just about not making it the only game in town. So you realize you have this inclination, right? Like, okay, I have this impulse. I'm having this reaction and there's some, there's other stuff going on. And maybe some of that other stuff's interesting. At the very least, it's not like this just single, you know, dictator saying like, well, here's what I've done before. Here's the most obvious thing to do. And so that's all there is to do. You, and as long as you realize that there's something else going on, you could pay attention to some other idea, even half-baked as it might seem, or you might dismiss it. Now you have, now you're playing the game of choosing, right? And right. And once we get into this game of like, oh, I, I can choose something. A lot of those feelings of like, oh, it's always the same. I have no power. Right. Like everything's just happening to me. I'm just sort of walking through my day. 
a lot of those feelings go away and that can be really rewarding in itself. And you're like, oh, maybe there is something to sensation, even though if I don't, I don't really know exactly what I'm going to get out of it. It, it feels like I have some yeah. choice and, and that that's a start. That's a thin edge of the wedge. We think. Yeah. Let, let's talk a little bit about um, what, what is the fundamental difference between, you know, Daniel Kahneman's work, Tversky's um, work around system one, system two, is mm-hmm. system one the default network? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's always a, a danger of saying like this one network is just doing all of the things automatic. Any part of the brain can develop automatic connections. But in general, we're thinking at a high level. Yeah, the default mode network would be this sort of automatic thinking fast network. Okay. Right? Got yeah. It. Um, and thinking slow is going to be a mix, is going to be more complicated, right? Because you're thinking slow. So part of it is no, I get it. Yeah, yeah. Part of it is taking information, part of it is manipulating and interpreting and seeing whether you can integrate that. So that's going to become actually a whole brain activity. Yeah. So would you say, Zendel, that the sensory forging could lead to a growth mindset or just simply support a growth mindset? Um, I think it could, I think it could do both. I, I, I think growth mindset is a mindset that um, emphasizes openness, um, ingenuity, creativity, and uh, doesn't rely on on habit as much. And there's also a motivational element to believe, I guess, in optimism. Uh, mm. And what happens with sense foraging is that you're getting uh, novel input and novel information, you're also seeing yourself um, operating in a situation by looking at two different perspectives on what you understand is happening. One perspective can be the tried and true default mode view through habit, through um, a kind of template matching that goes on. But sensation coming in can allow you to see the situation with increased inputs. And I think as Norm said, once you have the element of choice, then it's a different um, embodied experience because your capacity for agency changes with that. I see. I love it. What responsibility do do organizational leaders, um, managers, those that are out front leading, what responsibility would you say, both of you, I'd love to hear from both of you, to create an environment where it's almost designed into your life. It's almost like Google used to have this process where they spent a certain percentage of their time doing things other than uh, work on their actual job. And that's how Gmail was invented. Should we be designing into people's schedule space for this? Yeah, I mean, I think if everything is going perfectly, nothing is ever changing in your organization, then I'd say, no, it's, it's fine, right? Like, just to get people to be as efficient as they can. But no one has an organization like that. We just pretend we do. Um, and if you don't give people space to to be, you know, what looks like non-constructive, non-productive for a while, um, you also don't give people space to ever do anything new. You don't even give them space, not even to, like, do something new, but even to reflect on what's going on, right? And so people ju- will just end up, pr- processes in, in organizations will just continue to unfold and, and repeat the same mistakes of the past. So is it like a moral responsibility for for a leader to create this space? I, I think even just from a place of self-interest, if you want your company to actually be able to adapt, 
uh, and you want people to be able to use their own intelligence, no matter where they are in a company, to try to contribute to that company, you need to give them space to to reflect and, and be non-productive in the short term so that they can change in the, in the longer term. At an organizational level, I think something else is missing, though, which is after they have this space, there has to be a way for them to be empowered to communicate it. It's not just them moving you know, their own body or making their own decision, they can, they're probably, I, I suspect lots of people at lower levels of an organization with amazing ideas about what's going wrong and maybe even how to fix it, but no one's listening, right? So the managers then maybe even need more space to listen because they're so busy trying to, you know, create results. And, and so the higher you go, you the more space you need to actually be foraging into the experiences of the people uh, that you're accountable to. That, that's my take um, on it, but I do think it does cascade if you think of the whole organization as a kind of larger organism that you want to be integrated and you need uh, to create space for that integration to occur. Otherwise, you're just sort of operating in these like these micro units. And you know, that's... I mean, I think I think in some ways it's it's been featured in architecture around building mental health spaces. There are uh, design elements for building certain hospitals or certain wings that have a, a, a certain color palette, a certain spaciousness, a certain orientation towards nature and open spaces that are built in a way that naturally may activate this receptivity to looking, to seeing, to walking, um, to feeling certain you know, sensations of light. Uh, permeating workspaces but if you're not building a brand new hospital how do you actually do that and i remember <laughs> yeah 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 you know okay so um <laughs> I, I i taught some mindfulness sessions at uh, procter and gamble a couple of years back and procter and gamble was in a very straightforward um office tower in uh, toronto where they rented maybe seven or eight floors so what they did was they had a a, a program that was sanctioned by the uh, management group to develop leadership from within, and they they gave it a name like um, you know true leaders or um, um, true you know leader warriors or some kind of you know strange name that did single people out who were part of this, and they took a lot of pride in offering them different programs. Um, what they also did was they created an actual space where people could come to practice meditation. Uh, they announced it inside their uh, intranet, and um, it was championed by people, you know, very much at the top, including some high-level managers who themselves admitted to everyone on staff that they did meditate, so that there was a bit of a normalization process going on. And increasingly, more and more people accessed that room, accessed the space, and it became a little bit more normative inside that organization for people to do things like meditate, yoga, um, but even more than that, because those are still very, I would say, limited channels for the distribution of sense foraging activities. The idea of um, having a place where people could go for walks, uh, people could engage in different activities than the ones they were used to doing relating to like looking at spreadsheets all day or looking at um, you know supply chain issues all day. And I think that that was one small example of an organization trying to put something like this into practice. Yeah, I I have to be honest that I have become slightly obsessed with how leaders have to step up. Um, because I think the 
I think I think there is a particular trap, particularly amongst the West, with this discarded mindset of thinking being the way to identify your strengths mm-hmm. and not feeling and sensing. Mm-hmm. And that we have to be almost create a culture where this is even seen as a strength. That so many leaders and so many people have built our identities on our cognitive reasoning, thinking capacity, that we almost neglect this as a form of you're not serious if you're sensing. <laughs> you know, you're not you're not a productive member of society. And I think as the world evolves, I've spent a bit of time in Asia, East Asia, Japan, and I think as the world sort of builds and evolves and starts to merge philosophies, people are starting to see the kind of spiritual cognitive worlds merge a bit. And I do think we need to evolve. I mean, I'm very, very proud of our some of our Western philosophies and um, become increasingly more captivated by how they can complement other approaches around the world. What are some of your thoughts around how cultures can be built? I mean, Zendel just really highlighted some, some high-level value, but any evidence to support, uh, Norman, this merging of kind of spiritual Western you know, not that Western is not spiritual, but you get my point. Is there any support? Is there any support to this? Yeah, I think it's a wonderful question. Um, you know, personally, as someone who leads relatively small teams, leads labs, leads different research projects, um, I think it's important to to both think about and, and communicate, and also try to embody more than just um, you know the objective spreadsheet goals. Um, it can be a simple and, and, it can, and it can it can be a risk, but to say, you know, I care about your happiness or I care about you. Imagine like your boss saying, I care about you. And I'm like, Oh, mm-hmm. like, right. And, but the, for them really to mean it. Um, and what, what that space is like, I think we have huge blind spots where we assume that people below us in an organizational hierarchy feel any sort of power or comfort in communicating problems. Um, and not that you want to be their, their personal therapist, but like, even problems within the organization or that they didn't understand something in a meeting because the sense is that like, you're just a tool for them. And if you think you stop becoming useful, they can get rid of you or replace you with yeah. someone else. So the culture, I think you're right. The default is not like we care about each other and, and we're all in this together. And so um, it, and I think it is a risk or definitely like a breaking of the the traditional you know, archetype of, of a manager or leader to say, like, I, I actually care about you and I care enough to to talk to you and, and listen to you. And, and some, some of it gets back to what we were saying before, like in a meeting, spending some time, not just doing small talk because the meeting hasn't started yet, but like it's on the agenda in a, in a way that like, I actually want to tap in and, and see um, what's going on. And I, I think the evidence yeah. behind this is that, you know, a lot of the things we've already been doing haven't been solving the problem, the big problems in life, which is like meaning and happiness, right? Like, yeah. and so you're really good at giving people drugs that don't kill them and, and kind of stabilize their moods, right? Like we're really good at yeah. that. We are really good at making fewer people die in automobile accidents uh, and, and all the stats about, you know, birth rates and, and things like that. But you, it's really hard to claim that people are happier now than they were a hundred years ago. And I think there's a bit of a, a disenfranchisement with a lot of our, our conventional, you know, Western um, 
ways of, of being that's led to this resurgence in interest in things like mindfulness and, and yoga and in Eastern philosophies. It's, it's not just being marketed from the top down. There's like a yearning there. Right. Yeah. So I see the evidence like all around me, not necessarily from like this published research paper, this, but just the general interest, the way the market continues to expand beyond just like exploiting what we already know gives us that shot of dopamine, that shot of pleasure. And the flip side is like, it's so, we're so close. Like, I'm also really, really hopeful. Like, you can have someone step into the room and be authentic and say, like, I really care about you. What can we do to, to make things? work in, in this situation and it you can just feel like even talking about it and trying to talk about these ideas instead of brain networks i feel myself transformed right, right? so it's, it's yeah. right there like it's just on the other side of our behavior so i think it's it's a great time to be to be optimistic but it does take a it is a bit of a leap of faith like well what if they stop respecting me what if what if it's not what i normally do and that's the essence of the foraging like i think there's something good out there but it, it could turn out badly right it could be, eat the wrong mushroom or find a predator or something like that it's that same biological uncertainty but the the reality that millennia uh, of of teachings is that it's it's not a wolf at the door it's like every abundance is out there right like our connection is out there so i think that's really what motivates us a lot behind all of the nurture of, of our work is is that sort sure. of yeah yeah it's where you find some of the magic right it's where you know one of my guests i've had roy Sutherland, he's vice chair of uh, ogilvy uk and he wrote a book called alchemy and it's mm -hmm. really about this counterintuitive approach to creativity it's mm -hmm. like the ability to play, the ability to explore your your deeper unconscious kind of hidden pattern just by having fun or or creating. Um, he spoke in his TED talk about how reframing something, that simple shift of a reframing, can kind of solicit different parts of the brain and so forth. And you know, I, I, I want to just get become very clear for the cynics and people who listen to go, is this just a new framing of an old idea? What is the fundamental difference between your work and mindfulness? You know, that's a great question because that was also our starting point. Um, for me, one of the realizations is um, very few people listen if you, uh, or I should say, even if you publish uh, a really high impact study that's got a large sample and that follows all the criteria and all the rules of what uh, you should have been doing methodologically. Um, it doesn't really move the needle in terms of increasing the public health participation of people in practices like mindfulness. And so in 2020, we published a study where we used an online version of uh, treatment that we developed. We tested close to 400 people. We followed them and we found that adding this online treatment reduced rates of relapse. And um, the paper was published in a JAMA Psychiatry, great journal, and nothing changed. And um, at that point, I think I realized that there needs to be different access points. So I guess a simple answer to your question is mindfulness, yoga, a lot of these retreat experiences train sense foraging. They train sensation. Wow over thought, they train embodied moments of awareness over <clears throat> conceptual understandings. But the truth is, a lot of people are never going to practice mindfulness. No one's necessarily going to start embracing yoga. People are going to start doing all kinds of things and call it mindfulness. So how can we try to provide a more 
um, diverse, broad spectrum approach to sense foraging without requiring people to say, you can only get this if you practice mindfulness. The truth is, it's all around us. You can get it by turning on the receptive mode and just putting your feelers out and noticing everything that's already there. That's the starting point. And I think one of the main motivations for me in writing this book, and I think Norm's on side with this as well, is that through this book, we suggest that exact thing to people. Don't worry about mindfulness being a route into this. There are all kinds of ways. And once you start to interact with the sensory world as a way of providing new information into dealing with habit, into dealing with other structures, there's a lot more that you can explore. But the access point is at such a low bar to entry that we think that that's an important place for um, everyone to start. Wow. Let me get a closing comment from both of you, you know, both from your, you know, your, I know you guys compliment each other quite well, but you're coming into this work sort of from different backgrounds. I'd like to hear from both of you as our, as our closing comment. What is the starting point? Whether you are a young and up and coming professional, you just finished your master's, you entered the workplace, or you are a senior leader. Uh, if somebody said to you, I'm in a hotel or I'm at home. I'm thinking about the next year. How do I start right now? Yeah, a wonderful question. I, I think um, for each person, it starts with an intention that you're going to try to do something a little bit different, right? And even start that you're like, I'm, I'm up to something different is is the starting point. If you're if you want to protect and have nothing change, you're not you're not ready to do sense foraging. So you can be sitting in a hotel room, sitting at home and think like, what what would be just radically different for me to do right now? And we suggest that for most of people, it's like, have, have you looked around the room? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> have, you, have you noticed like what it feels like in your body right now? Have you um, just watched your mind wander for a couple of minutes? So and it's it's paradoxical because you want to figure what's gonna, how to get that at one year or five year plan done. Yes, um, yes. But have you checked into really like what's what what's important to you right now? Like what's going on? Are you still fulfilling the plan that you told yourself when you were like 13 that no one's ever going to talk down to me again or like, you know, wow. I'm never going to be vulnerable again? Or is, is that true of you right now? Is that really what you're up to? And then once you kind of get in contact with like, okay, I'm here right now. I'm this person. I have these motivations. Like a lot of the the, the planning will sort of fall into place because you're really clear on who you are. Right. Right now. And it could change again. It could be different an hour now, two hours sure. from now. Right. So I would say the access point um, for people is to set an intention that I'm I'm up to something different. And what I'm up to what, what's different is I really want to be receptive to what what I can sense right here and right now, which is a very kind of mindful scene instruction, but it doesn't require a formal pose. It could be going into your thoughts. It could be just just being exploratory about your calendar, about your plans, um, and just being open to being surprised, right? Just to wow. so the way I you, love that. Yeah, the way you know that you have the right intention is you are open to being surprised, right? And then see what happens, right? Because you don't know. And that's the beauty of it. So just just, just to build on that a little bit, I would say one of the big emphases in contemplative practice uh, is helping people to let go. And it's let go of like, this has to do something for me. This has to get me somewhere. This has to be a certain way. I need to mm -hmm. feel like this or that. But it's really hard to understand what does that let go mean? 
since foraging is a way of, in very practical terms, allowing yourself to receive without an expectation. This is what Norman just said, the willingness to be surprised, and then building off that to feed that into your plans, your values, and the greater goals that you have in your life. Well, it's funny because I normally would not have done this interview in this hotel, in this moment, because I normally want things to be a little bit more structured, a little bit better lighting, but I trusted my gut and I'm glad I did. And I'm happy we had this conversation at this specific time because, you know, I, I it's funny coming into the conversation, I was like, which direction do I want to take this? And I just came in with an open mind and I really appreciate you guys sharing so genuinely. And I appreciate you bringing, you know, sort of a fresh framework to this mindfulness dialogue. And I'm, I'm rooting for you guys and I'm looking forward to the best part about having this podcast is hear people or people emailing me or post on social media that they went to get this book <laughs> and, uh, and what it meant and what it's done for their lives. So, Better in every sense is out January 23rd, right? Yeah, 24th. Yeah. 24th. 24th, 24th. And uh, is there a website that we should go to to get this book? Yeah, you can go to betterineverysense.com and there'll be a link to every supplier under the sun. <laughs> on there, And you can find, we have some nice graphs and some other, you know, fun, fun things to interact with there. So yeah, thanks just so thank you so much for this opportunity to share. It's it's been really amazing to have this conversation. And thank you for embracing the chaos. I know you've been you've been traveling to take time to talk to us. That is a, a leap of faith that it's gonna be worth your while. So hopefully it was for you and for your listeners too. Awesome. <laughs> I, I'm, yes. You're an early adopter of, of some of these ideas and we really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Zendo. Thank you so much, Norman. I really appreciate it. To everyone listening, please share this interview with someone you care about. And I really believe that if we incorporate this type of philosophy into our personal life, you know, we are that that being open to surprise and being more curious. And to every leader, you do have a responsibility in creating an environment for your people. Until next time.